For The Daily Princetonian, I'm Mark Dodici. You're listening to Daybreak. Even before the terror attack, yesterday was a weird day on Capitol Hill. In this episode, Daybreak's Hope Perry sits down with Princeton professor Sean Wilentz to discuss where this day fits in with the timeline of American history. Professor Wilentz is a history professor here at Princeton, specializing in 18th, 19th, and 20th century America. He's the author of The Rise of American Democracy, Jefferson to Lincoln, which won the Bancroft Prize and was a finalist for the Pulitzer. Professor Wilentz, thank you so much for joining us here today. Hope it's a delightful to be here. Thank you. So I just wanted to go ahead and start off by asking you um, for a little bit of historical context. Earlier this week and earlier today, we've heard members of Congress, notably Princeton grad Senator Ted Cruz, cite the election of 1876 as a justification for objecting for the certification of the Electoral College. So Mm -hmm. I just wanted to ask you on behalf of our listeners, what happened in the 1876 election? And can you speak a little bit about the similarities and differences between that election and this past election? Yeah, I kind of wish Senator Cruz had taken my course because the, the connection between this election and what happened in 1876 is non-existent. What happened in 1876 was that there were disputed elections in, I believe, three southern states. And the question was which, which um, group of electors was going to be respected by the Congress. Um, this was in the, in, towards the end of Reconstruction. You know, several of the southern states had been, quote unquote, redeemed. That is to say, the um, you know, white supremacists basically had taken power back. But there were still some states where, because of the presence of federal troops, um, you know, the, 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 that Reconstruction had not yet ended. Well, there was a big fight in these states. The election was a, was a very, very close one. And the, um, the outcome of the election de- uh, was to turn on what the results of those three states um, would be. Uh, the Republican candidate, um, Rutherford B. Hayes, was actually running second. Samuel Tilden, who was the Democratic nominee, was one electoral vote short of, of winning the presidency. But these three these states sent two sets of electors because there was a controversy about, about which who had won, either Tilden or Hayes. So it's not like today. I mean, today, every all 50 states have certified, you know, the, the outcome. There's no dispute among the states. The state governments are not. The selection of electors depend, you know, belongs to the states. That's what the Constitution says. So there's no controversy about that these days. The idea that this is in some way analogous to what happened in 1876 is just, uh, what should we say, desperate, I think, on the part of those who are supporting the president in, in, in his various endeavors. So the idea of, you know, what happened in 1876 was that there could be no, um, it was, you know, pe- people gave up trying to decide, you know, which, which slate of electors to choose. So um, a, a special commission was appointed of 15 members from the House, the Senate, and the Supreme Court. And in the end, the notorious compromise of 1877 was worked out, whereby the Republican Hayes was named president. And at the same time, the troops were, were moved back to their barracks, in effect, so that the Reconstruction, in effect, ended, what was left of Reconstruction ended. It's, it's, it's awfully ironic, actually, that someone should be citing the, um, um, given, given the cur- current racial turmoil in the country, that any senator um, would be citing the 1876 election as something we ought to look, look to as a solution to our current problems. But historically, there's, there's really no analogy at all. Thank you. And I kind of want to go off a little bit of what you were saying there. So I I know that a few days ago, along with Douglas Brinkley of Rice University, Mm -hmm. you co-sponsored a statement that was published by Politico uh, that was objecting to this congressional effort to overturn the election. So for our listeners, can you speak a little bit about the historical implications about this particular congressional movement to refuse to certify the Electoral College? Right. Well, that actually plays over what I was just talking about, Hope. I mean, you have a case where allegations of, election, of, of electoral irregularities have come 
basically from one source, which is the president of the United States and his accomplices and supporters in and out of Congress. Um, but there's been absolutely no evidence provided that, that any of these charges have any you know, uh, reality at all. So there are charges, lots of charges, but no evidence. This is a dangerous thing <laughs> because it's especially dangerous because the president has a, any, you know, as we saw today, millions and millions of followers who are willing to believe anything he says. So that if he says that there are there was, you know, fraud going on, they will believe it. And he whips up a distrust, not simply of, of the Democrats, but distrust of the entire process. And he calls into question the essential, the bedrock principles of American government, which are popular sovereignty, you know, the, 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 the rule of the majority to choose its own leaders. So on, on, in the most, you know, essential, for the most essential reasons, all of this is, is, is deeply irregular. Now, the president was accorded and his um, accomplices, his, his collaborators were accorded every right under the constitution and under um, federal law to, to show their evidence, to bring their evidence forward, you know, to, to go to the courts to, to, to see if they could have a resolution of their complaints. And something more than 60 cases ended up being brought by the, um, by the administration to try to contest the election in various swing states. In every 62 cases, this is state and federal courts, including conservative justices, liberal justices, justices named by President Trump. In all 62 cases, the administration's, the administration's case was not simply, didn't simply fail. It was dismissed almost with derision by the judges as being reckless and being far-fetched, so and, and being really out of line. So it's not as if um, you know the the, the the president and was not given his opportunity to uh, you know to show that that these charges were true. Um, so what have we got? We've got a situation where um, the people had spoken, you know, the, on election day. The state legislatures had spoken by certifying the results of the elections. The Supreme Court ended up speaking of all, all the other courts that met. Uh, the Supreme Court. Um, on December 11th, I believe, or somewhere in there, um, shut the door on a last-minute effort to try to over overturn the electoral results by the by the administration. Um, and then finally, the, the electoral college has spoken um, when it when voted on, on in, in, in uh, three days later to um, to elect, in effect, to formally elect uh, Joe Biden the president of the United States. So amidst all of this, amidst all of this, some of the president's supporters um, are using a perfectly what pro forma. Um, um, exercise, a, a grand and solemn exercise of, of congressional power under the Constitution, but an absolute pro forma one of simply certifying that indeed the, uh, the, the states actually faithfully reported their results and in, in, in certifying their state elections, using that to yet again try to hijack the entire process and to try to, um, you know, to whip up support. And, and, and in some cases, I think, um, try to promote their own uh, future political um, um, fortunes. Some, several of the people who are involved in this, you know, certainly have designs on the presidency in, in 2024, uh, for whatever reason, to tr whether it be uh, blind allegiance to the president or whether it be um, their own personal fortunes, what have you, to try to hijack the process yet again and to put the country through a, uh, what, you know, yet, yet another, you know, trauma in effect, in a way that really runs counter certainly to the, not to the letter of the constitution, they have every right to do what they're doing, um, but to the spirit of the constitution, certainly. Add into that, the, the, it is under the, under the law from that was passed in the 1880s, Congress does have the right to challenge um, the certification from the states. There's no question about that. And there's, they're following the, the constitutional processes. But, but that, was, that was intended for really serious breaches, really serious mischief going on with evidence that these things occurred. It, it's occurred in the past. A, a, couple, a few Democrats, I think, 
um, in 2004, tried to object to the results in Ohio and, and tried to, to, you know, to challenge things. But there's a few isolated, you know, Democrats who were, you know, also baselessly in the end, you know, trying to challenge. It is nothing like what is what, what was being plotted for today, which was you have, you know, many, many members of Congress. Um, you know, something was 11 or 12 senators and 100 odd uh, congressmen were challenging this. This is this is not only not only it's not just frivolous, it's dangerous. It, 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 it once again eroded any kind of faith that the people who are following the president, you know, could have in the system. It was it was at a conscious attack on, um, you know, on, on, on public trust. And again, the bedrock principle of American democracy, which is American government, which is so the sovereignty of the people and, you know, majority rule. So, you know, that's what was going on here. And when, when Doug Brinkley and I got a bunch of historians to, um, to sign the statement, you know, I've done this in the, in the past. Sometimes historians you know, should not every historian, every historian wants to do this, but some of us feel that we have a civic function as well as an educational one, an intellectual one, that we do serve our country in some way or another. And, and one of them is to, you know, to, to bring historical knowledge and wisdom to bear on issues of current, you know, political um, um, uh, difficulty. And that's what we were trying to do. Okay, I think I finished the thought there, though, right? Um, yeah, definitely. Um, okay. I just have one last question. Earlier today on CNN, um, the Capitol historian was was speaking to the correspondents there and said today that today was the first time that the Capitol has been breached since the War of 1812. So uh, I know that you've done a lot of work um, with early 19th century history. And I was just wondering, um, is this true? And if so, um, what do you think about it? I mean, who are we really to contradict, I suppose, the Capitol historian? Nothing to get me to do it, Hope. Come on. <laughs> I, I just um, wanted to, I wanted to hear a little bit about, because I know the that- The capital historian is absolutely accurate in, in, in uh, his or her, I don't know who the capital historian actually is, I'm embarrassed to say, but whoever it was, um, I mean, yes, in 1814, um, the British um, under um, General Coburn actually um, entered Washington and they burned the White House. Um, it's sort of why it's called the White House actually, because it was originally called the Executive Mansion, but the British burned it. And then when they redid it, they painted it white. And so it's called the White House. But they also uh, attacked the Capitol. They, they spared one or two buildings, more or less in retribution for the Americans' attack on, on, on the city of York, which is now the city of Toronto, because we had we'd attacked them earlier on in the war. So this is kind of payback. But it was part of a, a, an invasion that, um, you know, it was a military action by a foreign power. This is the first time that any kind of breach like this has occurred ever in American history by American citizens and by, you know, insurrectionists. I mean, I think that's the only term that you can use for this. That's what this was. It was a violent attempt to uh, attack on, um, you know, the public business, on, on the, the, you know, the process of the government of the United States. A, a kind of a pro forma one. I mean, you know, as I said, this was not a, uh, you know, this was a kind of a formal um, exercise of power. It was, it was ceremonial, in fact, more than anything else. But nevertheless, you're, you're certifying the outcome of a presidential election. That's a almost, you know, if you believe in civic religion as kind of sacred, you know, part of American democracy. There was, this was a, you know, a deliberate attack on on that on that on that ceremony, on that process, on that part of the public business. So that is insurrection by definition. And um, it's interesting that early on during the, the protests um, in the um, over the summer coming off of the George Floyd killing, um, there was a point where they, they the, the demonstrations actually did get violent. And, um, you know, there were the people were doing some some people, a minority of people were doing things that they oughtn't to have done. But the White House was talking about invoking the Insurrection Act, which was an act um, that was passed under President Thomas Jefferson, I believe, in 1870. 
want to correct me about that if I'm wrong. Um, the irony of this, of course, and that was all to try to you know, use the federal government to crack down hard on these demonstrators, both violent and nonviolent. The irony is that the only insurrection that was actually instigated was instigated by the president of the United States himself. The problem with the Insurrection Act is that it gives the power to the president to suppress the insurrection. What are you going to do when the president is actually running or inciting the insurrection? <laughs> That's the problem we actually face tonight, um, is, is what, where to go from here. Um, and it's why there's such serious discussion, even among Republican leaders, of invoking the 25th Amendment, perhaps, or uh, among Democrats, actually, of, of drawing up bills of impeachment right now and just getting it over with um, and seeing if they, if, if they could do it then. Um, because, you know, we still have 14 days left to go. And, uh, you know, a lot can happen in 14 days, as we've seen. But also, apart, apart from fears for the future, this, is, this was extraordinary what happened today. I mean, one can't um, minimize that. To have a president of the United States actually incite uh, an insurrectionary mob to attack a branch of the federal government, the legislative branch of the federal government, in the pursuit of, um, you know, in, in, their, in their duties in, in completing a presidential election, this is an extraordinary attack on the Constitution. This is an extraordinary attack on the rule of law. For a president to do this with impunity strikes me as very dangerous. You know, we talk about the soul of the nation, you know, and healing the soul of the nation. And no matter what happens, we have to try to heal the soul of the nation. And I understand what that's about. But the nation is the Constitution. There is no nation without the Constitution. And if the Constitution has been so violently and deliberately attacked as it has, as it was today, um, as it has been actually for a long time, actually going back to what was going on in the, over the over two years ago. It's been, it's, today was not the first attack on the Constitution. The obstruction of justice during the Russia business, all of that would be taken into account. But what happened today was in some ways the culmination of the Trump presidency, it seems to me, um, in, its, in its lawlessness. And it's actually the culmination of trends within American politics going back 30, 40 years. Um, but the radicalization of the in the Republican Party in particular of this uh, mistrust, actual absolute disdain um, for 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 democracy, for political procedures, for the government itself. And what you saw today was an attack on the American government by Americans. This is the worst day for American democracy. January, what is today? January 6th, 2021 was the worst day in the history of American democracy since April 12, 1861, when, when the Confederates fired on Fort Sumter. Wow. There's, there's been no worse day for American democracy, for the process of American democracy. There have been terrible other days. I'm not trying to say that everything's been peachy keen since then. We can talk about everything from you know Pearl Harbor to September 11th, you name it. But in terms of the actual structure of government and of devotion to the Constitution, I mean, even to me, to my way of thinking about this, you know, the, the crimes of Watergate, say, pale by comparison to what happened today. Um, and, it's, and it's brazen. I mean, Watergate, they were hiding. <laughs> Watergate was all done. You know, you had to get uh, John Dean to caulk and all the rest of it. It was all being done. It was like, yeah, it was the cover up. But I mean, but the crime, too, was all done surreptitiously. This was in the open. This was an open appeal to, you know, to a mob to, to invade the, the, the Congress and to halt its proceedings. I can think of nothing, no, no more direct assault on the basic principles of American government um, um, since the firing on Fort Sumter, frankly. And um, that's a big statement, I know. And there have been other, many other terrible things like Reconstruction that we talked about. You know, the Compromise of 1877 was not exactly America's finest moment. <laughs> but, but in terms of the deliberateness with which this occurred, 
you know, um, whether the, whether you think the president is out of his mind, as one of his associates apparently said to this evening, or was just listening on CNN, whether you think that this is a psychological problem, doesn't matter, doesn't excuse it. Um, this was the most direct um, attack on American um, democracy in a formal sense. Um, you know, I, there's nothing, put it this way, I can think of no other example that's more, you know, obviously egregious and brazen other than the firing on Fort Sumner. That's all for Daybreak Today. Be sure to check out our other episodes covering the events in the Capitol yesterday, including an exclusive interview with Princeton professor and Speak Freely author Keith Whittington. Today's episodes were produced by Jack Anderson, Hope Perry, Francesca Block, and myself under the 145th Managing Board of the Prince. Our theme was composed by Ed Horan, Class of 22. For The Daily Princetonian, I'm Mark Didici. Have a wonderful day.